When I was in college, uh, I did some stupid things. And one of those stupid things that I did was uh, over a Thanksgiving break, when I was back up in Phoenix uh, for the break, and a group of friends and I decided that we wanted to really experience Black Friday. We wanted to see it in all, all its glory. And so after Thanksgiving, we kind of got together and decided we're going to go to Target. And we're going to go at midnight when it opens, and we're just going to see what happens. Like, hopefully someone gets trampled. Hopefully we get to see someone fight over an insignificant object in Target, you know, just like on the YouTube videos. And somewhere along the line, I don't know who it was who came up with this idea, but someone decided, what if we all wore Target outfits? Like the red shirt and the, the khakis. Like, what if we wore that and just kind of saw what happened? And so we get to Target at about midnight, and the line is just like wrapped around the building. And finally we get in, and I remember I didn't even have a red shirt at the time. I had the khakis, but I, I didn't even own a red shirt somehow. And so I went into Target, and first thing I did was I headed to the men's section, found a red shirt that fit, and I threw it on. And almost immediately, people started coming up to me and asking me questions. They would say, oh, hey, do you know where this $100 TV is? I need to get this $100 TV. Like, this is so important. And I would say, well, yeah, I know where it is. It's all the way in the corner of the store. As far as you can go that way, when you think you've gone too far, keep going. And uh, it, it was really kind of fun for a while to, to just pretend. And soon, what ended up happening was an entire line formed in front of me. There's a picture that's probably on the screen right now. And in the picture, uh, it shows me pointing some lady who wanted something, some Black Friday deal, to who knows where. And you can even see the tag that's hanging off my shirt. And, and what's funny is I, I ended up having this line that formed in front of me of people wanting to know where things were. And so we just started sending people places. Me and a couple of my friends who were dressed the same way, we just started saying, hey, yeah, it's definitely over there. You should go uh, all the way to the front and then take a U-turn and then come all the way back to me. That's where you're going to find it. And uh, about 20 minutes in, some of the real Target employees started to recognize that something was wrong. And they started uh, to head over our way. And, and they saw what we were doing. And they were like, why are you doing this, what they ended up doing, which was what we deserved is they kicked us out of the store. And the reason I tell the story is, is just because I put on the Target costume, right? just because I had the red shirt on, that did not make me a Target employee. I might have fooled a few people, but I wasn't a real Target employee. It wasn't real. You know, I've never worked at Target. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just making it up. It was fake. See, we're in the book of James, and James, he believes that it is through grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that we are saved. But real faith, this, this faith, this genuine faith, it means something. It gives us a regenerate heart. It has some effect. It's not just checking a box. It's not just putting on the costume. It's not pretending this real faith shows up in real ways in our lives. And that's what Jared's been talking about for the last three weeks. He's talked about how faith shows up in trials, how, how faith shows up in, in the works that we do in this world, how faith shows up in the words that we use 
react to other people, the things we say to others. And this week, James, we're going to be in James chapter 4, and James gets practical. And I think that this might be something that we all need to hear today. So James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? He says, why are you guys fighting? What's up with all these quarrels? Right? I, I don't know about you, um, but there's something about being locked up in a house, not locked up, okay, being forced to stay in a house with your family that causes some fights. It's been a month now that we've been locked down. And uh, I would say, I bet you almost every person that's watching this has had a fight with someone. Every person watching this has had a quarrel with someone. At some point, you just get on each other's nerves enough being around each other. And I don't know if it's with your kids or your spouse or whoever, but these fights are happening. And see, what James is talking about here, he's, he's not talking about healthy conflict. What he's actually talking about is he's saying, look, these fights, they're causing a, a breakdown of relationship among you. And he says, what, what are these fights coming from? They're coming from your desires that battle within you. Notice he doesn't say uh, they're coming from your, your crazy kids. Notice he doesn't say it's because of your spouse. Notice he doesn't say it's because of anyone else. He says, no, it's coming from within you. There was this uh, marriage retreat that Sarah and I went to a couple months ago, and they kind of told us that, you know, when people come to these marriage conferences, what they tell them the first day is, is that what they need to do is, is draw a circle around themselves. And then they say, okay, now what we're going to do is we're going to focus on fixing everything in the circle. See, so that's what I'm wanting us to do this morning is that I, I don't want to be thinking of, oh, how this applies to someone else because James says it right here. It's, it's something that's going on within me. It's not, it's not about my circumstances. It's not a birthed out of you know, being stuck in a house with these people, that just exacerbates the problem that's already going on within my heart. That, that really what's wrong is that I have a disordered heart. There's a sin issue in me. And what is that? What's the cause? He picks up verse 2. He says this, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James here, he's saying, you live a life to please yourself. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, you desire, but don't have. You, you want stuff for you, so you kill. He, he says, you covet. You see what other people have, and you want it for you. I want that for me. But you don't get it, so you quarrel and fight. And it says, even when you ask God for things, even when you, you're, you're praying to God, what you're doing is you're really just praying for you. You only care about me, 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 me. And that's why this relational breakdown is happening. You see, I would rather put my comfort, my convenience, my pleasure first in a hundred little ways throughout the day than, than put anyone else's. George MacDonald, the uh, 19th century writer, 
Scottish writer, had this famous quote, and he said this, that the one principle of hell is I am my own. See, th there's essentially two ways to live life. One is I am my own. My life is for me. Or we can live my life for yours. My life for me or my life for yours. And there's a hundred small ways that this is going to play out in our lives every single day. You know, uh, think about it for a second. In order for us as humans to bring life into the world, what does it cost? I mean, a, a woman has to give up her life, essentially. She has to give up her pleasure. She has to give up her uh, conveniences. She has to give up her comfort, especially, right? And, and even to raise the kid. I mean, if any of us uh, are still here today, it's because our parents gave up their opportunity, they gave up time, they gave up money for sure, they gave up so many things for us. And, and, and so the my life for, for yours idea is really the only way that life is brought into the world. It's a, it's a life of little deaths, but those little deaths lead to resurrection. See, death to the individual brings life to community, brings resurrection to relationships. So the, the breakdown of, of these relationships is this my life for me mentality. But what's the cause of that mentality? What's the underlying condition here? Well, James would say that it's pride. C.S. Lewis actually called pride the complete anti-God state of mind. And this is what James says in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Man, James is not holding any punches here, right? He's using some pretty strong language. He's, you adulterous people. He's not saying you're cheating on your spouse. What he's saying is you're cheating on me, which is actually a little worse. What, what he's saying is I love you. I care about you. And throughout the Bible, he refers to us as his wife, as his spouse. He says, you've broken the promise. You've broken your promises to me, and you've hurt me. That's why it says that he jealously longs for us. It's not, not out of any sort of insecurity that God might have. It's out of, the, of, a, of a loving spousal relationship that he longs to have with us. He loves us that much, and, and we have broken the promise. We have walked away. We have all gone our own ways. And God is jealous to have us back. See, friendship with the world in this verse, what he's really referencing is pride. It's this me first mentality. It's this idea that I run my life. I'm the, I'm the number one, right? I'm the most important. My life is for me. C.S. Lewis has a quote. He talks a lot about pride. And in this quote, he says this, in God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God is that, and therefore 
Know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. He says that, that pride not only breaks relationships with others, but it breaks relationship with God. How can you see something above you when you have this pride causing you to look down on others? I, I think pride actually looks uh, different than a lot of us think. I think at first, when we first think of pride, the very first thing we think of is this idea of arrogance, this idea of uh, someone who just thinks they're better than everyone, right? And it's easy to see how arrogance would ruin relationships. It's easy to see how, how that kind of pride uh, would be a destroyer of, of community and relationship. But I think there is a, a more hidden sort of pride and, and I think that pride shows itself even in, in something like low self-esteem. Because what is someone with low self-esteem but someone who's thinking constantly about me, about themselves? What, what if people don't like me? What if I don't do a good enough job? What if, what, what if I, I, I'm not good enough? What, what, if, what if me? See, there's still this self-obsession that happens. Humility really is not the lack of confidence. It's, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's this idea that I'm not the focus. It's not about me. That's where courage really comes from. Courage comes from the idea that I'm not really even thinking about myself. I'm thinking about others. So true humility, I think, looks a little different than we've maybe played it up to be. See, prideful people are always worried about what's mine. They're worried about what people owe them and, and how they, they are so easily offended. They constantly feel sorry for themselves. It's this, my life for me. What about me? What about what I deserve, right? The truth is that the greatest mercy in the universe is that God does not give us what we deserve. So we're called to this humility, this my life for yours mentality, but how do we get it? Well, James says in verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So what's he say here? First, he says, you need to submit to God. What does it mean to submit to God? It's this idea that he gets all of our lives, not just a little bit. He gets all of it. What's, what's idolatry? I mean, if you really think about it, what is this idea of idolatry? Idolatry starts with this desire. And maybe that desire isn't even inherently wicked. It's not even inherently a bad thing. You might have a desire to have a nice house, or you might have a desire to be in good shape, or you might have a desire to have a little money in the bank, right? Those aren't even bad things. But imagine that desire sitting in the palm of your hand. I think the thing that happens is over time, our fingers begin to close around this desire. And what started simply 
as a desire becomes a non-negotiable. It becomes a thing that I can't give up. And so we come to God and we say, God, I submit to you, I give you my life. And God says, well, what are you holding in your hand? And we say, don't touch it. Don't touch this thing. I need this thing. This, this is what gives me hope. This is what completes me. This is what gives me my identity. I have to have this thing. See, that's not submission to God. Submitting means opening our hands. Everything, God, is yours. Everything is yours. And sure, that opening our hand might mean that God might take away something that we thought we needed. But it's only when our hands are open that we can receive from God what we truly need, what we really need. So that's what he says first. Second, he says we need to resist Satan. I know that Satan is not a popular topic. Uh, a lot of people don't even believe in Satan, but he's alive and well. And uh, in Genesis 3, we get a picture of Satan as the serpent. And we see the lie that he first told to Adam and Eve. So God has made this beautiful garden, this entire earth. And he's made man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he's put them in it. And he says, this is yours. Take care of it. Enjoy it. Be fruitful and multiply. And he gives them one thing. One thing, he says, is just don't eat from the one tree. There's one tree. Just don't eat from that one tree. So the serpent comes along, Satan, and he says this to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman says to the serpent, no, no, no. We, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die, which is not what he said, but anyway. And then in verse 4, listen to what Satan says. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, that's the lie that Satan tells, and it's the lie I think that we still hear to this day. You hear the lie? The lie is this, that God is withholding from you something. There's some joy. There's some fulfillment. There's something that you deserve that God isn't giving you. And so you need to take matters into your own hands. Actually, he's robbing you of something that you deserve to have. I think that's the lie that we still believe today sometimes, that I would make a better God than God. And I think if we believed God at his word, that he loves us the way that, that scripture says he loves us, that he loves us like a spouse, then I, I think it would be easy to resist Satan. Finally, it talks about how we need to take sin seriously. It talks about how we need to wash our hands, you sinful people, how we need to mourn over our sin. I mean, it, it's talking about this idea that we're sinful and we need to take it seriously. But I think what really happens with us is we'd rather flirt with our spin, we, sin. We'd rather spend time getting cozied up to it. There's this uh, new documentary that came out on Netflix. I'm sure you've heard of it, Tiger King. And uh, it's about basically these zoo owners who own hundreds of tigers, and they're horrible, and it's like a train wreck. You can't look away from it. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to ruin a part of the, the documentary for you here, but guess what? Someone gets attacked by a tiger in the documentary. 
And I remember watching it and thinking, I knew that was going to happen. Like, you can't spend all day around tigers. You can't spend all this time in a tiger cage and not expect for one to attack you. See, that, that's what we do with sin is, is we like to see how close we can get without getting attacked by the tiger. You know who's never going to get attacked by a tiger? Me. Because I'm never going to go into a tiger cage. And if we treated sin that same way, if we saw sin like this tiger, like, oh, this is dangerous. It's probably a bad idea to spend so much time around it. It's probably a bad idea to flirt with it and stick my arm through the fence and just see what's going to happen, right? We need to take it seriously like we would take a tiger seriously. See, James here, he's given us these things that we can do to to create humility in our lives, to kill this pride. But I've got bad news, and then I've also got good news. The bad news is this, that we cannot check all the boxes. Look, we are not going to do this perfectly. We're not going to submit to God perfectly. We're not going to resist Satan every time. We're not going to take our sin as seriously as we should. We can strive and we can work, but guess what? James even says it here. He says, you and I are adulterous people. We break our promises. We mess it up every single time. Even in my quest to become more humble, even in my quest for humility, I could become prideful in how humble I'm being, right? But here's the good news. It's verse 6. It says this, But he, but God, gives us more grace. That is the gospel right there. But God gives us more grace. See, Jesus was the one who submitted to God perfectly. Jesus was the one who who resisted the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus was the one who lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus was the one who endured the greatest humility of all time in, in his death on the cross for us. Jesus was the one who drew near to God And because of that, he deserved to be the one who God would draw near to. But Jesus on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say this? He earned it. He he should be the one that God is never forsaking. The truth is, God forsakes Jesus so that he doesn't forsake us. We take Jesus' place and he takes ours. God on the cross gives us sight, and he gives us something to look at. Mark 8.35 says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, with Jesus, the way up is down. There's an upside-down principle of the universe that he has made things work in. When we lay down our lives, that's when we truly find life. A life that has been transformed by the humility of Jesus on the cross puts on display that very humility by taking up its own cross for others, by living a life of my life for yours. When you've experienced my life for yours in Jesus, it's then that we can live it out to the people around us and show it off in those hundred little ways every day. So there's a few questions I think we should think of this week. Um, just as we, we in strive to uh, live this my life for yours, this, this humility that God talks about. First, 
What, what would it look like to, to sacrifice in this sort of way for your family? What would it look like to live this my life for yours with your family, with your neighbors? How does it play out in the hundred little decisions we make every day? And how would it look if an entire community did that? How would it look if everyone in the community was laying down their lives for each other? What, what would families look like that truly lived this principle out? Lord, we thank you for showing us what humility is. For humbling yourself even to death on a cross for us. Lord, I pray that you would empower us to show off that humility in the way we treat others. Lord, we thank you for showing us what my life for yours looks like so that we could be free of my life for me, so that we could be free from pride. God, I pray that this week we would gaze upon you, we would focus on you, and that in seeing who you are and how you've loved us, we would love others in the same way. Thank you that true faith shows itself in humility. In your name we pray. Amen.